For the preaching of God's holy words, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verses 29 through 34. John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And this is not human literature, but the word of the living God. The next day he, John the Baptist that is, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. As for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing to the preaching thereof. Last week, congregation, we have begun to look into the first day of a very momentous week in the Gospel of John. When the Jewish religious leaders had sent a committee to inquire about John the Baptist. And we saw how beautifully he pointed away from himself, how wonderfully he didn't speak about himself, but instead professed the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he said was Christ-centered. He was all about Jesus Christ, and he simply refused to exalt himself. Having seen this, we were challenged to become more just like that, all about Jesus Christ and not about self anymore. And this morning we are going to look at the second day of this momentous first week in the Gospel of John, a week that will end or result in the wedding in Cana. Jesus had already been baptized by John in the River Jordan, and he has been tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days. And today we will see John the Baptist amongst crowds of people preaching and baptizing. He's preaching and baptizing. He's proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ when suddenly he stops as a man is approaching. John's face is suddenly lighting up with joy as he stretches out his hand as if to command the masses to look away from himself, away from himself, unto this man. And he shouts with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And then in verse 30, he repeats what he had already said in verse 15. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And he's once again pointing out the eternal nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, the eternal God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. And his statement makes even more sense, or the reason why he's saying it makes even more sense when we keep in mind that Jesus' earthly birth happened after John the Baptist's. After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. Now, why is he saying that? God knew, of course, what liberal so-called theologians would do. They would say he simply refers to his earlier birth. If the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed born before John the Baptist, they would surely say that that's what he means. He ranks before me. But since he was born after John the Baptist, this case doesn't work anymore. Because by God's providence, John was born earlier. There can be no doubt that John the Baptist here is referring to the eternality or the eternal nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God. But now let us look at the peculiar title that John the Baptist is using for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is one of those things that we are quick to read over and we don't pause. And never ask ourselves, why does John call him that exactly here? Behold the Lamb of God. Well, it might interest you that the expression Lamb of God is nowhere else to be found in the New Testament. The term Lamb is once found, is found in the book of Revelation, but the term Lamb of God only in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. So why does John call him the Lamb of God here at this juncture? Not because he's gentle and meek, although he is, of course, but because he is the one who came to become the great atonement, the great sacrifice for the sins of his people. The one who will make atonement in his own death for his people. The one who will be slaughtered, who willingly went to be slaughtered for his people and to become the great atonement for their sins. He was the true Lamb of God that was pictured in Genesis chapter 22. The Lamb that Abraham told Isaac at Mount Moriah that God will find, that God will provide. Remember when he asked, but which Lamb, which sacrificial offering? God will provide a Lamb. He was the true Lamb who was reflected in the Passover back in Egypt. That was a type of him the blood of which the Israelites had to put on their doorposts and lintels in order for death to spare them. He was the true lamb that was pictured in the Old Testament every morning and every evening in the temple when a blameless lamb had to be slaughtered. 
He was the lamb of which Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The great J.C. Ryle was absolutely correct when he said that we know nothing rightly about Jesus Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain. End of quote. So John the Baptist's exclamation presents to us Christ with his peculiar title as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God. But he not only refers to Jesus Christ's title, but he also refers to Jesus' peculiar work or particular work as he adds that this Lamb, this Lamb Jesus Christ, takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist doesn't cry. Christ came to ease the burden of sin. He doesn't say, Christ came to make your life a little bit easier or a little bit happier for us. No, he says, Christ came to take away the sin of the world. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, came into the world to save sinners. His salvation is a complete salvation. It's not a part salvation. Take away doesn't mean that we still need to add our own good works to what Christ has done. It doesn't mean that we might be saved for a little while until we commit another big sin or until we feel not close to him anymore and then we have to come again and again and again and then once we die we don't know are we in him or are we not in him. It doesn't mean that Christ has merely opened up an opportunity for sovereign man to decide for God whether he wants to accept this gracious offer or not. No, he came to pay for our sins. He came to pay for the sins of his people. He came to completely and once and for all take away all the sins of his people, both Jews and Gentiles who believe on him. Beloved, the price for sin has been paid once and for all. Our salvation is a complete salvation. It is not a part salvation. And you say, Pastor, we know this. We've heard it for decades. So why don't you live like it? Why every time there comes some shaking into your life, every time something happens out of the ordinary, every time there comes hardship, you are scared about your salvation? If you know that his salvation was a complete salvation, if you know that his salvation was a once and for all salvation, why are you fearful? If your hope is in Jesus Christ, you must not be fearful. Because the price of sin has been paid once and for all. There's nothing you could add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. Our salvation is complete, as the author of Hebrews tells us. 
that you will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is indeed a once and for all salvation. J.C. Ryle again writes, He took our sins upon himself and bore them in his own body on the tree. The sins of everyone that believes on Jesus are made as though they had never been sinned at all. The Lamb of God has taken them clean away. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lamb of God, is fully sufficient for our salvation once and for all. Never forget these words. Once and for all. But not only that, he continues to be our Savior every single day, as one commentator puts it. He did not cease to work for his saints when he died for them on the cross. He lives in heaven as a priest to present his sacrifice continually before God. In grace as well as in providence, Christ works still. He's ever taking away sin, end of quote. He's ever taking away sin, always the sin that you and I produce with our wicked hearts on a daily basis. He takes away on a daily, momentous, momentarily basis. Now, we have talked about the Lord Jesus Christ's title that John the Baptist gave him. We have talked about his particular work, that he takes away the sin of the world, meaning Jews and Gentiles, all those who believe on Jesus Christ. And now we shall look at the peculiar office which John the Baptist attributes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which office? He speaks of Christ as him who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. These uh, baptisms that we are seeing and have seen some weeks back, these water baptisms are only administered with water. But John the Baptist refers to another kind of baptism, a baptism with the Holy Spirit, which clearly is different. Now what is the relationship between those two? We talked about this. The water baptism that we administer is a sign. It is merely a sign and a seal for the covenant of grace. It is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And the sign, as we have talked about, always points to something. It signifies or it signifies something. That's why it's called a sign. It, 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 it points to a reality since it's only a sign. All the waypointers that you have on the roads, they are not cities or buildings or sites. They are just signs to real buildings, to real places, to real Sights. So water baptism is only a sign that points to a reality. And the sign that water baptism uh, points to and signifies is the baptism with the Holy Spirit being born again from above and receiving new life. That's what water baptism is a picture for. But there's also another lesson here for us in passing concerning the mode of baptism. And I'm just repeatedly mentioning this because 
uh, you know, having dealt in uh, higher education for a long time, I often had the experience that our children have not the slightest clue why we baptize infants. And therefore, I keep mentioning again, they go out into this world sometimes very ill-prepared. And then they are confronted with somebody else with a different opinion, and they're not able to stand their ground. They're not able to defend their doctrine, and we lose them. Although I have to say a thousand times earlier, I lose them to Baptist brothers and sisters than to the world, of course. And yet we need to have our doctrine right to the best of our understanding. As we just saw, John the Baptist compares the two, water baptism as the sign and baptism with the Holy Spirit as the real thing. And he keeps mentioning um, his baptism is only with water, but Christ's baptism is with the Holy Spirit. Now what can we draw from this? In Acts chapter 1, in verse 5, we see Christ, the very beginning of Acts, we see Christ telling the disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And he uses the water baptism of John as a sign for this real thing. And he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course we know to what he refers, not many days from now. He refers in Acts chapter 2, of course. He refers to Acts chapter 1, he refers to Acts chapter 2. And how did they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Were they bathed in him? Were they immersed in the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit came from above as divided tongues of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, just as it was prophesied in Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Pour out. You see, the sign and the real thing have to correspond. And this is one of many reasons why we sprinkle in baptism and not immerse. And also when we baptize our children, because of all that has been said, we don't believe that baptism itself or water baptism itself saves them. We apply the sign of water baptism with the hope and the belief that Christ already has or will administer the real thing to them. Regeneration, the birth from above, the second birth. But baptism in and of itself neither brings forth regeneration nor conversion. It is and it remains a sign. And only he, on whom John saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, only he can baptize believers with the Holy Spirit. We can baptize with water, but only he can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, let us now take a short look at verse 34. After having seen the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist here comes to a glorious conclusion. 
and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What is happening here? This is John the Baptist's conclusion of everything that he has said so far. This is his crescendo. This is the harbor as, at which he arrives. This is where he wanted to get it. This is what the whole gospel of John is all about, to see the Son of God in all his glory. And he says, this is the Son of God. Do you have ears? Then listen. Everything I said, he says, points to him as the Son of God. No one else can take away the sin of the world. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Only He is the Redeemer. Only He can cleanse us. Only He is the one who can liberate us from the bondage and slavery and condemnation of sin. One wants to sing the doxology right away, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. One wants to fall on his knees right now. Even we, frozen, chosen, have this desire to fall onto our knees before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But we have to ask, of course, what does this mean to us this morning in Walker, Michigan? See, there is a word in verse 29 that is easy to miss. It is the first word that John the Baptist exclaimed when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ approaching. And it is the word, behold. Behold. Not just behold the Lamb of God, but behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And once again... We see a true servant of God, a true servant of Jesus Christ. His first word again points away from himself unto Jesus Christ. Away from me, away from me. Behold, behold, he's coming. It's him, it's him, it's him. Beloved, that is what being a Christian is all about. That is what the Christian life is in a nutshell, pointing away from yourself unto Him, unto Him who is the center of all things. Behold, Jesus Christ. It's not primarily about personal salvation, although personal salvation is a wonderful blessing for us. It is a part of God's glory. It's not the end of it. It's not primarily about personal happiness. Although happiness or real joy is a very pleasant side effect, if you want to call it that, of living for the glory of God. You want to be happy? Give yourself. Don't take. Give. That's what you were made for. But believe it or not, Christianity is about Jesus Christ and nothing or no one else. It is all about Jesus Christ. You see, we got the name right. Christianity, Christianity. Theoretically, we got it right. Practically, we got it wrong so often. 
Christianity is about Jesus Christ, about the God who in Isaiah 45 declares, there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's what behold means. That's what it means to point away from us unto him. It is communicating, God, look unto me and be saved. And we respond and we reflect and we resonate and say, look unto him and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. That's what the Christian life is all about. Looking away from ourselves, from what we think we need or must have unto him. We just sang it. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever. Dear brother, dear sister, don't build your own kingdom. Don't constantly look after yourself. Behold him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Turning away from our self-obsession and worshiping him instead who has saved us and cleansed us from our sin and liberated us from condemnation. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what John the Baptist was all about and that's what we have to be all about Oh, we live in a narcissistic society. Oh, we live in a self-obsessed society. A society where even among God's people, so often it's all about pleasure, sensuality, joy, fun, and enjoyment. Where churches have turned into theaters with cafes and rock concerts. I even heard of a church, they do an oil change on the Sabbath day while the people so-called worship. They have ceased to be awe-inspiring places of worship where God speaks, where his people, he evokes they, the voice of God. And where sermons must not be over 20 minutes because we're not really interested in sitting still for more than 20 minutes. We don't have more time for this. Oh, we sit at baseball games for three hours. We watch movies for two. We sit at coffee shops for hours. But no, worship services have to be short. We don't have time for this. But we must not be like this. We must not. Our lives have become so self-centered, so pleasure-oriented, that there's really no place for God anymore, except to bless us and to give us what we want. It seems like in our culture that's all what God is good for. Bless us. Bless us now and in the way we want it. Make us happy. And if not, we have great counselors who tell us it's okay to be angry at God. It is okay to be angry with God? You know what's okay? That God is angry with us. It is okay that God destroys us for our cold-heartedness, 
for our worldliness, for our selfishness, for our half-hearted devotion. That's okay, but it's never okay for us to be angry at God because he doesn't give us what short-sightedly we want right now. We must become like John the Baptist, looking away from ourselves, away from our desires, away from our lusts, away from our sins, away from our temptations, away from our greed, away from our ego, unto him, the Son of God. There's no other way to see him. You have to look away from yourself or you don't see him. That holds true for your assurance as much as it holds true for your personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, for your sanctification. In order to see him, you have to look away from yourself. And that's the hardest thing for us, isn't it? Looking away for ourselves. This is where we're all the same. Pastors, elders, deacons, the pew. Hardest thing for all of us. Looking away from ourselves unto him who saves his people from their sins and condemnation. Let me close with a few words from John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, when a person becomes a Christian, it is no longer a priority to listen to the world. It is no longer a priority to care what the world may think. Everything changes. The world looks completely different. All of the temporal pleasures of this world become less enjoyable because a greater joy has been found. Thus you place your fingers in your ears for you no longer care about the world's opinion and you run like a lunatic crying, Life, life, eternal life. End of quote. Dear brother, dear sister, does this describe you? Or are you still caught up in yourself and your pleasures and your amenities? Beloved, let us be resolved today as we're planning to take communion in a few minutes that our lives shall be about him and him alone and not about ourselves anymore. May we have our eyes fixed on him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. May God truly help us. May he help us to look unto him at all times. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our most gracious Heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O Lord, we come to you asking for forgiveness once again for our selfishness, that we consider it so hard to look away from ourselves, that we struggle so much and we shouldn't anymore. O Lord, help us both in the pulpit and in the pew, to get our eyes away from ourselves unto you. May we find our hope and our joy in him who saved our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we also...